Hello and welcome to episode two of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting the podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning. And we've got Johnny Sisson in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Johnny. Good morning. To start off, we wish to thank those that listened to our podcast last week. And secondly, thanks for all the comments that were very encouraging. There was a request for a video version, but we're still learning how to talk properly, let alone to look professional as well. Um, In today's episode, we're going to talk about a few lenses that interest us, and hopefully they'll be of interest to you. To kick us off, Carl is going to talk about the Helios 103. Thanks. Most of the people on the Photography with Classic Lens page probably have a Helios 44. It seems to be one of the first lenses that people buy uh, because they hear about the interesting swirly bouquet. A lesser known lens and a real gem for a low price is a Helios 103. It's a 53 millimeter lens, f1.8. And it's an odd lens because if you look for it on eBay, all that you'll see is, is an optical block with an aperture. And it's a strange looking lens. It isn't a beautiful lens. It's a really good performer, but but it's not a beautiful lens. It, it has a black plastic front with the aperture adjustment and then just a metal optical block. And there's no, no helicoid um, associated with the lens. Um, and the reason is that it, it's a lens that was made to go on a Kiev rangefinder, and the helicoid is built in as part of the camera. So if you buy one of these for $15, you've got a good deal and a nice lens, but you don't have the whole lens. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So I really like the lens. Um, it's a very special lens. It's sharp, wide open, and at all apertures. It can produce a very interesting and unexpected flare. The bokeh is nice. Um, it also can produce swirly bokeh like the Helios 44. This is my favorite lens for um, when the spring flowers come out. I get this lens out and go take some shots. But I've shot pictures with this lens at concerts. I've shot cityscapes. I've shot people. It's a a very versatile little lens. And I I like it now, especially that I have a Fuji camera because it's a low profile rangefinder lens. So it's small, sits close to the camera. And um, so it's good for that reason too. The interesting thing about using it is, well, when you buy it, you don't have the whole thing. So there's no way to use it on your camera, you need an adapter, but you you need an interesting adapter um, that has built into it a helicoid, the other part of the lens. And uh, once you get that, the lens that you buy for $15 or even $12 will just snap right into a little clip that's on that other part. And there's a couple of different ways you can go. There's um, an expensive one that's probably um, a little under $100. And then you'll see on, on eBay, if you search Helios 103, not only will pictures pop up of the lens, but you'll see you'll see listings that have the helicoid and an adapter to different kinds of cameras. Um, it's easy to find uh, Sony, Fuji, and Olympus adapters. And what has happened is that someone, usually in the Ukraine or Russia, the ones that I've seen, has taken part of an old Kiev camera and removed that, that helicoid part and then welded it onto a M an L39 to um, your, whatever your camera is adapter, and, and made a custom made helicoid. And, and you can you can get the lens and the adapter from these folks for in the forty to fifty dollar range. I won't talk about you know the durability of the things. Um, I haven't had them long enough to know uh, compared to a professional one. The thing I have two of them. I have one that fits my Olympus camera, and I have one that fits my Fuji. 
they're they're interesting because as you screw it out to focus, you can see the um, the helicoid. And a lot of people ha haven't seen that before, and you you know that that's inside of your lens. But it's kind of cool to, for the first time to see. Oh yeah, that's what that looks like. Um, you have to be careful because these guys that make them take out a safety stop that's normally in there, and if you screw it out too far, the lens will just come out in your hand, and then you've got a lens with half of a helicoid. And you can get really annoyed trying to screw it back together. I'm doing it right now. I have it in my hand. Can't get the thread right. And I'll have to sit down later and put it back together again. Nice lens. Adapter is interesting. Um, these custom adapters also have little protrusions on the outside. So if you have a, a contact Kiev outer bayonet mount lens, which I have a couple, I can use the same adapter for those lenses. And so um, it works out really nice for me. I have... I have four of these lenses. Um, it's interesting because I, I have a Kiev camera that I bought that had a broken part. So I bought another one to pirate the parts to make one of them work. And then I bought an adapter and with a lens for my Olympus. And then I got another adapter and a lens for my, um, my Fuji. And I quite like it. I, I um, You can look at my um, Flickr album, which Simon will, will post a link to and see photos that I've taken. You'll see the diverse use of the lens. And I posted a couple of pictures of night photos over the weekend um, that you might have seen and, and you can look at. And I, I have a lot of pictures on the Facebook page taken with this particular lens. So I'm really pleased with it. It's it, it's a it's a pretty fascinating lens as well because the, it, I mean, most of the Soviet lenses were effectively direct copies of East German uh, Zeiss designs. Yeah, the 103... Uh, it's my understanding that that's that's not the case. Uh, that's not to say it's not a copy of another lens. And there have been I've, I've read many many articles uh, suggesting that it's a it's a it's a planar copy. But I've also read that it's also a Leica copy. I can't quite remember which um, which Leica it, it would be. Well, I'm not sure if it would be this based off a of Sumicron or a Sumilux or something prior to that, like a Sumar or um, something on those lines. But it's it's not it, it's quite rare that the fact that it's not actually a, a direct uh, result of something that came out of the factory um, in in 1945. Right, and it's an interesting lens in a number of ways, and um, I've not seen anything like it before. The um, the aperture is very strange. It has um, an opening that gives a, 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 a decagon with 10 sides, which is unusual. And if you look at the aperture blades the first time, it almost looks like this organic thing closing down. And what you realize is it's two rows of blades, an inner and an outer row. I think the lens is fantastic optically. Using it is a little bit fiddly because um, it's almost impossible to change the aperture without holding on to the base of the lens with your other hand because the aperture turns relatively tight on every lens I have. And if you turn the aperture, you focus the lens. So you've got to get your hand onto the lens, change the aperture, and then go back to your camera and, and focus again. The reason it, that, 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 that it's that way is on a Kiev camera body, there's a little wheel on top of the camera that you turn with your with your finger of your right hand to focus the lens. And so normally you'd have your finger on that and you'd be able to turn the aperture dial and just hold it stiff and it wouldn't do that weird focusing thing. So, you know, there's little quirks like that and downsides to using these strange lenses, but um, I think you'd find if you, if you picked one of these up, you'd be really happy and you'd be surprised. Um, this is one of those lenses that when I go out and take photos, I'm often surprised at what images I get. I'll get some really cool flare 
or, or I'll get some um, odd thing that I just have not seen before, and I don't even know how it happened. It's a fun lens. Yeah, just a um, just a, a point there. You mentioned uh, decagon uh, shape being ten. It's it's a it's a nine bladed lens, so that's a a, a nonagon, I believe. But you counted nine. Okay, so I counted ten. See, we can't uh, even agree on the numbers that we're counting. <laughs> I I, th I thought we counted nine together, but there you go. But, I've no, got I've got nine as well. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's definitely. There, you guys are right. You guys are right. It's nine. Um, it's but, nine. But the adapter is is certainly interesting. And I've I've got a couple of adapters. I had uh, one that I spent a, a lot of money on. Uh, it was still based off a Kiev camera, um, and a guy in Austria, I think I think it was Austria where he lives. He certainly came from Austria, made one, and it was it was expensive, but the quality of that adapter was excellent, and it still is now, and, it, and it's as good now as the, the day I bought it. When I moved over to Sony uh, E-mount, I bought another one, but I didn't really want to spend that much money again, and I bought something similar to the one that Carl has. And the the quality is not as good, but it does have that uh, little party trick of the of the, the, the helicoid uh, extending much further than normal, which also gives you the, the advantage then you, you can focus that much closer, um, but you, you just don't quite know how many turns you're gonna do before the thing actually unscrews out. So uh, that's a little bit of a worry. But but Johnny, I think you, you know of uh, people that and make an actual custom adapters uh, from scratch. Yeah, I have the uh, Amadeo adapter, which is made by um, a guy who is in South America. And uh, it's actually, he's been making them for a number of years. And the adapter is actually on the backside native to M mount. So really the idea is you put your contacts or Kiev lens on uh, an M mount camera. Uh, and it's it's very high quality. I mean, it's, it's solid, you know, milled brass. Uh, weighs a ton and it does a, it does a great job. I, I have to use mine because it is M mount. I'm using um, an, actually an M to Fuji X helicoid when I have it on the Fuji. So that gives me the closer focus, uh, the combination of those two adapters give me the, gives me the closer focusing ability on the Fuji. But it's, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, adapter. I actually don't own an M camera, so I can't use it natively on the M on, a, on an M mount camera, but it works great on the Fuji. One of the things that that I'd say, in, you know, in closing about this lens, I have so I have four copies of it, and um, I don't want to turn people off to using it because I think it can be fantastic. One of them is just exceptional. It's it's one of the nicest lenses that I have, and the other three are just okay, and they all have a serial number starting in eighty-one. So they all were made in the same year, so the quality control of the lenses or the variation between them seems to be enough that, um, well, at least in my case, I, I have that result. And the one that's the best one actually has a crack in the front element, just a small one. But um, it, it shoots beautiful pictures. And the others are nice, but they're just, they don't measure up to it. Well, that ties into something I've said many, many times now. You Certainly with, with Soviet lenses, you, you simply cannot judge the image quality of a lens by how the actual lens looks. My first 103 was a massively disappointing lens, uh, and it was beautiful. It even it was boxed. It uh, had its certificate to say just how good it was, and it just never delivered. It was a it was you know, a very mediocre lens, and the 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 lens that I have now, the one that I use, was one that actually came with the uh, adapter. Uh, it was a, sold as a as a freebie, if you like, and it's it's nothing to look at. The 
Um, the filtering is damaged. Um, it looks like it's had a great deal of use um, and not particularly careful use, but it, take, it takes great pictures. And I think that's one of the things about Soviet lenses is that if you were you know, back in the Soviet Union, you were probably quite lucky to get hold of one of these things. And once you got one, that was it. So if you had a good one, you were going to use it. But if you had a bad one, well, what was the point of actually using it? So it probably would stay in the drawer and never get used again. Yep, that could be. So we want to move on to Johnny and let him talk about his lens of interest. Yeah, sure. I can... Uh... Can jump in. Um, so I'm going to talk about a lens that uh, I feel like we've seen a lot this past week in talking with Classic Lenses Facebook group, which is the uh, Cosina Voigtlander Superwide Heliar uh, 15 millimeter f4.5 spherical. And I'm going to be talking about the screw mount version of that lens, which is the um, original and first version of the lens, which is it now exists in um, a few different versions. Uh, but the version I have was originally built for uh, use on the Bessa L, which was uh, released in 1999. And this whole combo is just kind of a bit of crazy genius um, that really surprised everyone when it came out. Uh, so, you, you know, we're talking 1999. Rangefinder photography had basically been dead since the early 80s. Autofocus SLRs just kind of took over everything. And, you know, Leica had not even made an LTM camera since about 1960. So to come out with, with um, this camera and this lens in 1999 was definitely an odd thing. Uh, I mean, it, it, and then on top of that, we're talking about a camera that was um, very inexpensive. It had uh, no range finder, no viewfinder, uh, but it did have TTL metering. And uh, being that it was like a mount, it will mount essentially any LTM lens ever made from the 1930s forward. So it was really a great idea. The, the problem is that Costina, who made this, uh, this camera, it was essentially the same camera they were making as uh, an SLR for manufacturers like Nikon with the FM10, the Olympus OM2000, uh, the Vivitar V4000, um, and a lot of other budget cameras uh, made for other manufacturers. So it was by many considered to be a lower end camera. Cosina optics were often considered to be cheaper optics. So great camera, great idea, image problem, right? So what do they do? They, with their marketing genius, decide, okay, well, let's use the Voigtlander brand name, which was one of the oldest and respected names in photography, had essentially been dead since the 1970s. And through a partnering, you know, deal, they're using their, their, now releasing the camera under the Voigtlander lane. So Leica users knew that name and the fact that uh, you could release an LTM mount lens meant 100% compatibility with all M mount cameras. Um, so really a kind of a brilliant lens and, com lens and camera combo to be released at the time. And there really weren't any affordable lenses like this at the time. The only thing close to being this wide uh, was the Zeiss uh, Hologon, which was made in 1968, and that was part of a you know a fixed uh, fixed lens camera lens combo, and incredibly rare, incredibly expensive. So there's nothing out there when this lens comes out. Um, so really, the this lens and the camera kind of reinvigorated uh, not only rangefinder photography to some degree, but ultra wide angle photography in general. And it, it kicked off the franchise for Casino Voigtlander. And, you know, they're still making lenses uh, today. So I guess uh, a bit more maybe about, thought I would talk about the Bessa L a little bit and then about the uh, the Voigtlander, the lens itself. 
the Bessa L, again, as I mentioned, a very stripped down camera with uh, no rangefinder, no viewfinder. So the idea is that you're using it with primarily wider angle lenses and using the massive you know, depth of field of the camera or the, the lens system to uh, give you that depth of field. So, um, you know, essentially you've got uh, this camera that's very easy to load, uh, traditional swing open film back, um, very lightweight. The whole thing weighs about a pound with the lens. Shoot with one hand. Uh, essentially, you can set it up as a point and shoot camera. Uh, it's, a, it's a great camera these days for folks who are maybe thinking about getting the 15 millimeter super wide Heliar. Um, if you don't have a Bessa-L, you might want to think about picking one up. You can get the whole, if you're going to get the the lens, you can, for another $100, get the camera. <laughs> the lens uh, was originally sold with a viewfinder. If you don't have that, you'll need it for the camera as well, which is going to add another 100 bucks. Uh, but I've seen camera and lens combos with a viewfinder going in the $500 range. So great option if you're thinking about getting this lens. Think about getting the Bessa-L as well the camera that it was designed to work on. So about the 15 millimeter lens itself. Again, it works with any, it's gonna work with any screw mount or M mount like a camera. Field of view is is really massive, it's 110 degrees. So you, you really have to um, even kind of curl your fingertips back when you're using it, if you're using it on a film camera. F4.5 aperture closes down to about 12 inches. Uh, I think I mentioned the weight, it's like four ounces. So it's a very lightweight lens. There is a built-in lens shade on the LTM version. It's uh, very flare resistant, excellent coating. Rectilinear has almost no distortion because of the symmetrical construction. Uh, color balance is good. Vignetting is um, very reasonable for you know the, the wide angle of it. And it's a non-retrofocus design for SL or for rangefinder, which means it's much more smaller than uh, super wide SLR lenses, and it's not as bulky. So it can be a challenging lens to use, I would say, but it's I think it's it's worth the effort for sure. One thing I've done with mine, uh, it does not have a filter ring, and I always shoot with filters with uh, black and white film. So I kind of worked out a uh, a solution of using a couple of step up rings and slipping uh, the whole contraption kind of over the existing hood on the can on the on the lens and it works great uh i so i've got essentially 67 millimeter filters on uh, my 15 millimeter now and i'm very pleased with that um, the lens itself does not range find or couple with the camera or any any camera for that matter uh, it is uh, depth of field shooting only so essentially you're looking at the distance scale on the lens uh, guessing the distance to your subject and going from there. The thing is, if you're stopped down at all, let's say you're shooting at f8, which is very common with this lens. Again, your depth of field is just massive. So you can set the lens to about uh, six feet and just treat it as a point and shoot and everything's going to be in focus. So I had mentioned that there's a couple other versions of, of this lens. There is a version two of the lens, which is an M mount, um, takes 52 millimeter filters, same optics, however. There's also a Nikon F version of the lens, which um, if anybody in the group is familiar with Dan Goshen, which you probably are, he shoots some occasionally with uh, the F mount version. And then there is the version three, um, which is also M mount uh, released in 2015. And this was specifically uh, made to address um, some of the edge shading issues that people were seeing on Leica M digitals and also on Sony uh, a seven full frame digital cameras. So, Version three, um, 
is a bigger lens, pricier lens, but for folks, you know, using Leica M and A7 uh, series cameras can be a really good option. It's, it's probably worth just touching on, touching upon that point though. You just mentioned like edge shading. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've not heard that uh, term before, but I, I, I get it. I, it, yeah, because I've used the, uh, or rather seen results of similar wide angle lenses, especially rangefinder lenses on, on, on Sony and the edges uh, can appear smudged. And, yeah, correct. Exactly. And, and my understanding is because the, the rear element is, is very, very close uh, to the sensor. Um, the light is, is traveling to the edges at a, it's a, uh, I'm not sure if it's an acute or an obtuse angle. Um, but it's certainly not heading to the, heading to the sensor head on. And of course the sensor is designed to have light hit it from head on rather than coming from the side. And so that, that affects the, the edge definition of, of, of the lens. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is a, um, a particular, you know, challenge with using this particular you know film design lens on digital sensors is that um, it is meant to sit very close to the film plane and film doesn't have that problem you know grain is you know the grain on the film is exposed correctly you know at the light coming through no matter what angle but essentially with a sensor you have these little micro windows over each pixel so if you think about it as a you know window with the angled light coming in uh, some of the windows on the edges are essentially being shaded by the angle of the sun coming in, right? So, um, yeah, that was a challenge and en- enough to the point where uh, Cosina, you know, decided to uh, make this version 3 because it was um, a very high-demand lens. I mean, there's just nothing else like it. Um, so they they did release that version that, I mean, I can't speak to you personally because I don't have you know, an M-mount camera or uh, a Sony, but it does seem to address those issues. I will say when I had a chance to borrow a Leica M10 from um, the Leica, you know, rep here in Chicago at the shop I work at, um, the first thing I did was pop on the screw mount 15 millimeter Voigtlander. And I didn't see any of that shading at all. Now, some people may notice it more than I do. Um, I don't particularly find edge vignetting to be a problem with wide angle lenses. I, I kind of like that look, but I, I really didn't notice any shading, you know, whatsoever. So I think the, 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 the edge issue is more about if you, if you, if you're shooting traditional landscapes where yeah. um, you edge to edge sharpness is important. Whereas, you know, you're, you're very much a street photographer. So you know, right. most, most of what very you're true. interested in is more or less in the center of the, uh, of the image, isn't it? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, for me, I, I actually like, lenses that have a bit of uh vignetting because uh, it does tend to emphasize more the center of the frame so i yeah that's something i i not something i mind at all but i could see where you know definitely as you say simon for landscape photography it would not be uh preferable yeah carl this is a lens that you're uh, a big fan of as well isn't it yeah this is one of my favorite lenses so um and use it for like urban scape shooting and street photography when i go to Cities like Washington D.C. It's great. It's so sharp at f/8 that um, you have a small piece of the image, and you still have something that looks like it's the, it's a, a whole image shot. Gabe, um, Johnny, you know when I bought the um, I bought this lens to use on my Fuji because I, re- I really like the size. It's just a nice little lens on that camera. And then when I bought my Bessa, I um, I bought a um, a 25 millimeter scopar voigtlander lens and maybe it's just my copy but the um 
same league that that 25 millimeter that i have i don't consider to be a, a wonderful it fits uh it's a nice uh, it just stays on there all the time and that that's the only time i use it but i never would put it on my fuji because it's it's so inferior to um nikkor lenses that are uh, similar focal length what are there, is it a very different lens the 25 yeah it, it is somewhat i it, it's um interesting i so I have the the 15 millimeter, the 21 millimeter. I do not have the 25 millimeter, but I, I would even say with the 21 millimeter, I notice that it's not quite as sharp as the 15. I mean, to me, the 15 is kind of in a class of its own. But I do think a lot of that is the way the lens behaves on a digital sensor. I, I think on film, um, some of that is, is mitigated and you just don't see it. I mean, yeah. Um, I think sensors have a certain look to uh, sharpness that you you don't really see in film. I think film is just as sharp; it's just a different look. Hard to explain, but I think you know the difference in the recording medium, the sensor versus the film, makes a big difference in this case. You know, with the twenty-five millimeter lens, uh, so it may be that issue more than anything else. I think that it it just I think the fifteen just plays very well, especially with the the Fuji X sensor in particular. It's it's interesting you mentioned the the twenty five there because I had the twenty five uh, mil scope R with a better L. And, uh, had the opportunity to buy one and I, and I I picked it up at the right price because there was uh, uh, I was also getting into Fuji at the time and I was thinking that twenty five mil would be a great focal length and I like the idea of that lens. Um, but I've got to say going back to the the better L, I was I wasn't particularly impressed with the better L. It's just you know, the overall feel of it and you know and it's it's had that very familiar feeling because it's it's the basis of a casino-made camera that there are many many versions, as John has already said. Um, but the the, the 25 mil scope scope or snapshot scope R, which is uh, to give it its um, full name, or at least the one I had, um, it certainly suffered from from edge sharpness on Sony as well. Uh, so it's a case of it it was going up head to head against my uh, Zeiss Distagon 25 2.8. And I, I just did a little test of the two together, and uh, really, the it just it just didn't work for me on uh, on, on on the Sony at all. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I um I don't have the twenty five millimeter, and I find that the twenty four twenty five millimeter range. I actually much prefer. To me, that's kind of the cutoff to go to an SLR. Uh, so. For 24 millimeter, I'm you know using the Olympus OM, and that works really well. I, I'm not exactly sure why that is, uh, but I, I I just find that the super wides I much prefer on on the Bessa, and I and I definitely prefer uh, above 21 millimeters. I I prefer the 25. It could just be that the um, I think the formula for whatever reason just works better on an SLR. That's possible too. So Simon, you're gonna talk to us about your planar. Yeah. Um... I touched upon this last week, um, and as some of you will will know, uh, it's a lens that I've owned now for actually I probably owned it for thirty years now, uh, and it's one of my first lenses, and and it still looks good, and it it just feels great. But it, it's just a it's a very very special lens, and it it's got a, a very very good reputation, and I think the the reputation is is deserved, although. Um, some some people put it into some kind of legendary category, which I, I'm I'm not entirely convinced it's it's quite got it's it's that good. But it, I do genuinely believe it is it is a special lens. Um, there are many 
50 millimeter or 55 uh, 1.4 lenses out there um, but I can only think of uh, one lens that I've tried at least that uh, is, is comparable to it um, another lens which I assume will be comparable uh, to it will be the the Leica R Sumilux uh, but I've I've not been lucky enough to try one of those lenses so I, I can't actually say um, but it's the the just the, the general feel of the lens is just special um, again it's not just because I've owned this lens for a long time it's just it just feels like a lens should do um, it, the the aperture ring turns it's got a very satisfying turn to it um, it's it has a rubberized grip which just feels good um, the same applies uh, to the focus ring there's a again there's a there's a nice heft to it there's a nice damping to it, it it's different damping to say uh, a Pentax lens which is you know quite distinctive um, this is probably ever so slightly slightly heavier damp than a Pentax but it's it's damped in the same way as pretty much all Zeiss lenses were at the time now this particular lens it's uh, it's from a, a contacts camera it was originally it originally sat on the contacts 159 mm which is uh, a camera that was made by uh, I think Kyocera I'm not sure if that's the correct the correct pronunciation there but um, Kyocera with the company behind Yashica and they partnered with with Zeiss uh, after uh, things broke down for reasons I don't actually know between themselves and uh, Rowley because there was actually a version before this uh, made by Rowley um, a 51.4 uh, made by Carl Zeiss and I've never actually tried one but I, I would imagine it's going to be very very similar um, the reason why I think it's going to be similar is was next to me at the moment I've got a uh, a Rolly planar uh, which is made in Singapore but it's pretty much using um, Zeiss specifications shall we say and it's remarkably similar actually to uh, to, to my 1.4 even though it's a 1.8 it's 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 a it's a pretty hefty lens certainly it's a lot heftier than the planar 50mm 1.7 uh, which I think is actually quite is, is certainly quite lightweight and it, it doesn't really have the same kind of quality as most uh, contacts Yashica uh, Zeiss lenses of, of, of the day um, recently I, I bought a, a contacts RX camera just so I could actually use this camera again because I, I sold my 159 about five years ago uh, I wish I hadn't but uh, I did and I bought an RX for it and it just it's just a beautiful thing when it actually it's paired to a body that it was designed for but it's great uh, when you adapt this to digital it has different qualities than when it when you have it on film it's um, as Johnny was saying film film isn't necessarily less sharp than digital it's just different and but what digital does uh, with a with it with an old lens it, it shows you know in in detail what the capabilities of a, of a lens are in minute detail and and I think the the Zeiss Planar 51.4 is a lens that it, it just doesn't disappoint on digital um, it does have a few issues um, it it can suffer from chromatic aberration especially uh, at the wider aperture at the wider apertures and and it can there can be a little bit of trouble with the intrusive flare um, if you if you're pointing a little bit more towards the sun then you can in, in one corner of the image you can quite often get uh, a, a little bit of veiling flare just appearing it's not necessarily a nice kind of flare either but as I mentioned earlier though it's actually very very similar well, sorry, there is actually one lens uh, that I do actually have which I think is relatively similar in, in well very similar in fact in the output it produces and that's the uh, the Nikon 
uh, Nikkor AIS uh, 50 uh, 1.4 and, and just just to confirm that I'm saying AIS there rather than the the older pre AIs I'm not too sure if it's different from the AI but certainly the AIS is is a is a special lens and I think Carl you've you've got that lens haven't you I have that lens too and I think it might be my favorite 51.4 lens um, it's a lens that like the um, Canon LTM I talked about last time um, can give a nice 3D pop if you're shooting a photo of someone at f2.8, um, the, the bokeh is really beautiful. Um, and there's, there's something about the images that I, I tell people ask me about it, and I say that they look clean. I don't know what it means, but um, I, I, they have a, a really nice feel to them. And uh, so I'm really happy with that. And I probably won't get a, a planar because of it. I was going to ask you something. Um, I'm on eBay right now and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if someone wants to buy one of these, you can see listings where they just say uh, planar T. And then and then you can see ones that say uh, planar T MMJ. And then you see ones that say uh, AEJ. And um, so it can be a little bit confusing. What What's the, what, what is this? Um, yeah. AEJ and MMJ. Well, the the AE uh, lenses were were an earlier version. I think it was the introduction of the the 159 mm. Uh, the letters MM are, are, are the clue in there. And that was when he shutter priority was was introduced on contacts cameras, and to enable shutter priority, an extra pin was needed. An extra connection between the lens and the the camera uh, was was required and attached to. I'm not sure if it's actually physically attached, but it's, it's actually no, it's, it's not. I've just I've got one in front of me at the moment, but just below the aperture, the aperture ring, there's a there's a pin that sticks down right on the edge of the camera, and and that will then connect with a uh, a connector on the on the camera. Uh, so that would that would actually allow it to um, use the shutter priority option, but it's. But the thing is, there, there can be differences optically between AE, AE lenses and MM lenses. And just before I talk about that, you, you'll sometimes hear, as you, you've already touched upon there, you've got MMJ or AEJ. Um, and you'll see other lenses, uh, which will say uh, AEG and MMG. G stands for Germany. J stands for Japan. So if it's an MMJ, then it's a late model made in Japan. If it's AEG, it's an early model made in Germany. Um, okay. What if I've not come across too many of these, um, but I, I do seem to find that the, the MM lenses seem to be a little bit better built um, than, the, than the AE lenses. Um, certainly the ones I've come across, in particular, um, the rubber. Uh, on the focus ring and the the aperture ring just tends to be in better condition on the on the MM lenses and uh, there's a it, it's as if like the uh, the AE ones are, are not not I wouldn't say they're they're cracking but it's as if like they've been out in the sun a little bit slightly too long compared to an MM lens so uh, but there okay. are but there are other other issues other issues other differences sometimes between the models there were optical differences and a few uh, Zeiss lenses are better. As, a, as an MM version and the, then they will be as a uh, an AE version and but the biggest difference that you tend to see is the way that the aperture uh, works on the on the a, on the AE lenses and on the MM lenses and that on the AE lenses the earlier lenses when you would stop a lens down to say f2 or a little bit beyond that you you it would introduce 
like a, a ninja a ninja star shape if you like like a throwing star um so you, you wouldn't get a hexagon you would get a, a hexagon with with points uh, six points uh, around it which um if you if you like your your, your vocal balls to be round it's it's either a shape that you you love or you hate so there also are z series lenses that look brand new and they're quite expensive compared to these used ones yeah, yeah. um and they're the the modern planars they'll be uh, there's a, a version for uh, nikon uh, which would be the uh, zf uh, f f mount and the ze uh, for uh, the ef mount or eos uh, mount which you know i've i've, I've had a um, a Nikon one in my hands, and I, I used it for a, a short while. And I, I compared the two lenses, my old my old one against the new one, and there was yeah, there was there was there was no great improvement uh, between the uh, my 30 year old one and, and something that was a lot more modern. They they had the same kind of look about them. It was a lot heavier uh, the the new version, and but it, it didn't have the same feel. It still it still felt good. And it, felt, it felt incredibly well made. I've never had a, a lens that I've actually physically noticed the the hard stops, uh, whether it be at infinity or uh, minimum focus. It, it just it it was it just seemed more precise than uh, two bits of metal hitting each other, which is exactly all it was. But uh, it just did had it did have a, a a distinctive feel to it, but. You know, I had an opportunity of keeping that lens in, in preference to the to to the contact Yashica version, and I opted to keep the one that I have because I don't think it actually did anything better. Uh, and I've also heard reports that some of the new lenses have have got more of a focus breathing issue compared to the old ones, but I can't confirm that either way. The only real advantage of a of a newer one is you is the uh, difference in the the aperture, uh, the diaphragm, you, you, because you get more blades. Because that's one of the downsides of this lens it only has six blades um which it just goes to show with just about every lens you think you, you've got a perfect lens and there's always something that you wish was you wish was better or could be better and why why isn't it better so although the lens isn't perfect it does many things really well i've already touched upon handling there but one of the great qualities of the lens is 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 the bokeh quality that it produces it's it's it can be creamy it can it can bring out bokeh balls it can do what you like but what it what it tends not to do is produce a, a nervous a nervous background it's usually pleasing in most circumstances but one of the moving on from bokeh really the, one of the the big points about the planar and you know going back to like the, the zeiss heritage is the um you hear words such as 3d pop and micro contrast and and certainly in the case of this lens and, and a few other Zeiss lenses I've used, I think it's actually true. Um, I mean, I've had discussions before where we've been talking about 3D pop and and I've I've looked back on my pictures and I've, you know, whenever I wanted to find an example of a shot with 3D pop, I always end up back at this lens um, because it does, it can deliver. Although interestingly enough, it, it delivers its, its 3D pop around about F2. It certainly doesn't do it at F1.4 where it's, you know, it's a, it's a little bit on the soft side. It's got a reputation about being particularly sharp, um, at the wide open, which I don't think it actually really deserves. For instance, the sister lens of this, the Yoshika ML 51.4, is you know a smidge sharper, uh, wide open, and 
yeah, we've also got eight blades as well. So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, the, of that Yashica, really. But it doesn't feel as good as the as the, as the Zeiss. And at the end of the day, I've had this this lens for a long time, so it's uh, it's it's a bit special to me. But micro contrast is an interesting thing. Um, that could well be, you know, what gives this lens its its 3D pop. I mean, Johnny, do you have any comments on micro contrast? Because I've never really got my head around what it actually means. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't. I think that's one of the hardest to define qualities of of any lens, and it, it seems like um, once the conversation on any lens gets into micro contrast territory um it's gets really subjective uh, because it's a from my understanding it's a very difficult thing to measure and it it does seem to come down to uh particular lens formulas um i know even with the um uh the leica m simicrons the thing that people will say set the i believe the version you know four apart from earlier versions is the micro contrast and you can kind of see it if you look at the um the uh sharpness scale of the lens but it 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 almost becomes one of those qualities that i think um for lack of any better way to describe what's giving the lens that little extra bit more it comes down to micro contrast right i personally the the place where i see it in my collection i've got uh uh, two versions of the Roloflex uh, 2.8. I have the 2.8C, which has the uh, Schneider Zenitar lens, and I have the 2.8F, which has the Zeiss Planar lens. And they do have a different look. I I would not say the the Planar is any sharper, but I would say it has uh, better micro contrast. And part of that may be that just that it's a newer lens. It may be the lens design, but there's a difference in the look. Um, so yeah, micro contrast, I think is not the same thing as sharpness, the way most people describe it. It's just a, um, a, a quality that gives that lens a bit more pop somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see where you're coming from there. It's, it's also interesting how this lens works on, on different cameras as well. Um, I've got a, a Mark one Canon 5D and it's my favorite camera and lens combination for taking pictures of other lenses. Um, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I do quite a few uh, on my dining table with uh, in, in black and white, mainly because the, the the table's quite hideous. It's a horrible yellow colour, <laughs> but when you convert it to black and white and run it through Nick Effect, it, it looks amazing. But I've I've noticed that you know straight out out of the box, it, it, it's just it just it just really really works really well on on the Canon to a degree where it actually seems to work better on the Canon than it does on the Sony. Which I don't think that's actually strictly speaking true, but you can you can tweak the image when when it comes off the Sony to uh, catch up if you like with 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 the Canon. But you know straight straight out of the box, it's absolutely in, incredible on on the on the Canon. But yeah, you know, a couple of other quick uh, things that I'm championing this lens. Um, yes, it only has six blades, but it it does something a bit quite unusual at f2 um it's still actually look, the the bokeh balls still actually look pretty round at f2 which you know i've i've compared it against other lenses the other 1.4 lenses at f2 and it just seems to do a better job even including lenses with uh, with eight blades um which I, i'm not entirely sure how it, how it pulls that trick off but certainly it, one thing it does when it gets to f2 it, it just it sharpens up brilliantly and and it just delivers that 3d pop just exactly as you would want it to be very nice. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. Johnny, how can we keep up and follow you? 
Uh, easiest way for keeping up with me is on Instagram for sure. Posting there pretty much every day. Uh, it's I am at Sisson Photography on Instagram. It's S I S S O N Photography. Those are all S's as in Sam. And I would also just say real quick, following up on the Voigtlander, a great resource for all things Voigtlander and Cosina is the CameraQuest.com website, Mr. Stephen Gandy's website. Um, uh, amazing resource for. Uh, a lot of different cameras actually uh so take a look there too right and call well you can follow me on Flickr. i try to keep my Flickr page updated regularly and um as i said the album uh, that has photos from the helios 103 um, has about 20 to 30 photos in it so that you can look at those and i'm just carl with a k havens on Flickr, and then of course on the classic lens page you can also follow me there I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon P. Forster. That's one word. I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. Uh, again, one word and four is F-O-R. And Simon Forster on Flickr. And you can also find my eBay shop by searching for It's Fozzy. Finally, you can always find us on the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. And it'll be great if you could join us again next week.